Psalm 36. Father, we just thank you and praise you for your goodness, your faithfulness. Lord, we thank you for your word. This is your love letter to humanity, not just to us, but this is to every person alive. And Father, we thank you and praise you for opening our eyes to the truth and that this morning it's very, very personal, yet we do not want to forget this word is for the whole world and you love the whole world. And as we leave and go out into our mission field, the world, we are to take what we learn and apply it with love and grace and mercy. So I pray for the gift of teaching. And Father, that we would not just have another intellectual Bible study, but we would allow your Holy Spirit to transform our hearts, that we might be more like Jesus, and that we might go out and impact our world, our sphere of influence, those four, six, eight people, our neighbors, our, our co-workers, our, our friends, our relatives, that we'd be available for them, for their hurting. And many of them do not know Jesus, and they are going to hell. So Lord, use us to lift their eyes to heaven. That we might pray with them this week. That we might encourage them and strengthen them this week. That we'd be honest and truthful with them this week. That there is an eternity. Bless the morning, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Psalm 36, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. What we're going to see in this psalm here is that David is inspired to write what most of the world today would deny. That there is a God that all of mankind will be held accountable to. You know, unfortunately, the world rejects the idea of a sovereign ruler of the universe. And and you may be sitting here this morning and you reject that idea. We're glad you're here. I want you to know that God loves you, and you're not here by chance. He wants you to know that, but he also wants you to learn that he is the sovereign ruler of the whole universe. And David makes it perfectly clear in this song this morning. Now, if you're new or visiting, we're going through the book of Psalms, which is a book of songs, literal songs. And so David here sings this song. Let's look at the first four verses. An oracle within my heart. Concerning the transgression of the wicked, there is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes when he finds out his iniquity and when he hates. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. In the New Living Translation, that verse 1 says this, Sin whispers to the wicked deep within their hearts. They have no fear of God at all. Notice that. Sin whispers to the wicked. You see, it's interesting how the God of this world will try to deceive mankind into believing that they are the center of the universe. It's a huge deception. It's happening in America. 
Most of the time, the enemy's tactics are subtle. And the sin that he entices mankind with may even appear acceptable or justifiable. Why is that? Well, Jeremiah 17, 9, most of you have this memorized. But the Bible says the heart is deceitful. This is your heart. This is my heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. You as a believer, when you think you have it all together, when you think you're having a really good day, when things are just going, oh man, this is just fantastic, thank you Jesus, and all of a sudden something happens and out of your mouth comes a something that's inappropriate. Or maybe it doesn't come out of your mouth, but your mind is thinking this and you're going over it and all of a sudden you start plotting what you're going to do to this individual who just cut you off in traffic. That's just showing you that as a believer, you still have a desperately wicked heart. But fortunately, because of the Holy Spirit within us, we can stop immediately and say, Lord, what am I doing? What am I thinking? That Bless that person. Keep us all safe from that idiot. Lord, whatever it takes, just... And all of a sudden, you turn that into a prayer. It's so important. You see, once a person receives Jesus as their Savior, the Holy Spirit starts to reveal the issue of the heart and gives directions on how to overcome the evil one. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, I greatly encourage you to have a Bible. Uh, feel free to grab one. There's some in the, in the pews, in the, not pews, in the seats in front of you. If you need one, take it. If you sell it, don't take it. But if you need it, it's no problem. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20. But you have not so learned Christ, Paul says to the believer. Paul says to the Christian. And I emphasize believer because the word Christian now, you've got to really be careful when you say, are you a Christian? Uh, because the Mormons are using the name Christian now. A lot of people use the name Christian. Now, are you a believer? That's going to raise their, well, what do you mean by that? Believer in what? Exactly. Okay, now I, now I know where you might be coming from. And now you define what a believer is. It's so important. So Paul is writing to the believers here. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. You know, our country was founded on the truth and we've created certain truths, but the ultimate truth is the word of God. We always have to go back to the word of God, even past our constitution. It is always about the word of God. And we've been blessed in a country where we have laws and this, that, and the other thing, but we ultimately have to go back to the word of God. That is our ultimate decision maker. That you put off concerning your former conduct. The old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust. And again, a lot of times when we hear the word lust, we, we think of sex, and this is not necessarily sex. You know, deceitful lust could be getting even with somebody who just cuts you off. I'm going to get even with them. You see, lust just means it's defined as that which is forbidden. Doing what that is which is forbidden. So we're not called to have vengeance on our neighbor. We're called to love our neighbor. But the enemy will try to deceive us into believing that we can get even with our neighbor somehow, some way. 
and be renewed. That word renewed there is really important. That word in the Greek means to renovate. To renovate. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Notice that, your mind, because the mind is a battlefield where the battle is real and the stakes are high. Verse 24, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. You know, as I was thinking about this, to renovate and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, Claudia and I like watching those shows uh, where they go in and, and they redesign the house. You know, and sometimes they have to gut the interior. I'm emphasizing the word interior there. They have to gut the interior and they have to start all over. And, and you know, for Claudia and I, we're, we're just amazed because we just don't have that vision. We, we don't understand, well, you know, if I take down this wall and I take down this wall and I put in this window and this, that, and that, and all of a sudden it's like a brand new house on the interior. We don't have that vision, but they do. So it's, for us, it's just really fun to watch. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does or desires to do in our lives if we do what we even sang this morning. One of those songs, again, had that word in it, surrender. Surrender. You see, if we surrender, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us will come in and start the renovation process because he has the vision that we do not. And sometimes things need to be gutted, knocked down, removed from the interior so that the remodeling can begin. And again, you notice I emphasized interior. Because a lot of times within religion, it's all about the exterior. I know for some people, when they they come here to church, they, they come in with a suit. And they feel very uncomfortable. But they were raised in that environment where they, you come to church in a suit. You get very dressed up. You look very uh, respectful, they think, on the outside. But on the inside, many people do not know Jesus. They look really pretty on the outside, but they don't know Jesus. They're playing church. They're very religious, very religious. Every Sunday, they're in church. They have their spot just like you guys. You guys keep sitting in the same spots all the time. It's amazing. And so it's easy to be religious and think, well, I'm doing my religious obligation. Raised Roman Catholic. We had a religious obligation. It was specifically said that way. It is your religious obligation to attend services. Really? It's about relationship. It shouldn't be I'm obligated to go to church. It should be I get to go to church. I get to be around my brothers and sisters in Christ. Man, I was with the world all week. Now I get to go and and I get to fellowship. I get to hang out with the guys at a men's Bible study or a ladies' Bible study for you ladies. It's not I have to go to ladies' Bible study or I have to go to a midweek study. you got to reprogram the program. It's a privilege to do these things, guys. And as far as the sinner goes in our text here in these verses, no matter how evil his sin becomes, he is able to justify his sin. Even when others around him believe that he has gone too far. Have you ever been around someone, or maybe even yourself, where you knew you went too far? 
Or you're around somebody else and you're thinking, man, you're going too far. Stop it. Relax. And when they hear that, it it almost puffs them up and it almost gives them glory and excitement. And they keep doing it even more. This is what David is expressing. You see, this type of person has ceased to think about eternity. Notice in verse 3 there, it says to be wise, to be wise. Those three words there, it means to give attention to, to look at, to be prudent, to be prudent. So important. In not thinking about eternity, this person thinks continually about evil. He does not abhor. The word abhor means to reject, despise, or refuse. To reject, despise, or refuse. And personally, I've only had a few people like this cross my path over the years. And I literally have, I don't know about you, but I literally have had a few people that fit this exact description. And it is just so bizarre. Uh, One guy that pops into my mind, he did three prison sentences. He's out again. If he hasn't repented, if he hasn't truly received Christ as a Savior, he's going to do it again. It's amazing. These people actually exist. There's no healthy fear of God, but rather a blatant, open rebellion against the things of God. And somehow they think that they will escape God's judgment. You see, in their minds, they are the judge, and everything will work out in their favor. But the word teaches us clearly, though, that that is not the case. And that's why we're here this morning, so that none of us, you might think, well, how does this apply to me? That none of us slip into this area. You see, David is writing this, but yet David slipped, as you all know. David slipped and made some horrendous choices over Bathsheba. So anyone of us in this room, myself included, if we don't stay focused and realize that there is evil, because many in the world right now are not saying that there's certain evils, that it's okay to do certain things, even though we and they know it's evil. Abortion, it's evil. But yet it has to come onto the front page where an illegal immigrant teen is going to get an abortion here in America and you and I are going to fund it because that's the right thing to do. Is that the right thing to do? I don't care if she's illegal or not. Is that the right thing to do according to the word of God? No. That's The point is we are a country that is ignoring the word of God. So we are going to reap judgment. It rains on the just and the unjust. So for you and I, we have to be prepared to take a stand for Christ, even in these uncomfortable situations. Most pastors will not address this. That's uncomfortable. It will make your people uncomfortable. They may not come back. If you don't want to know the truth, don't come back. I'm not worried about numbers. I want you to be able to go out and defend the faith because I'm not going to be with you. And they're most likely not going to come talk to me. So you have to be able to take a stand and say, no, that's wrong. Let's forget the illegal immigrant issue let's just talk about murdering a baby in a mother's womb that is wrong end of discussion it's wrong well no it's not and they will try to justify the evil so even as we read verses like this we can say well you know this doesn't really apply to us it applies to us it applies to us But now the next verses, 5 through 9, David shows us a contrast. 
Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. You might start be singing a song right now in your head, a modern song. Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your judgments are a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. I have these next three verses highlighted in my Bible. Your, how precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. You see, in these verses here, David offers a contrast and observes that the person who does acknowledge, which is most of us in this room this morning, that there is a a judge who is called God, that that person will increase in their dependence upon God. But now notice God's attributes versus the sinners. The first four verses, the next five verses. Mercy versus pride. Faithfulness versus deceit. Righteousness versus wickedness. True judgment versus deceitful compromise. Specifically at verse 7 and 8 here, the saint acknowledges God's goodness and places their trust in Him. Notice that, put their trust. Those three words there in the Hebrew, they mean to flee for protection. To flee for protection. You see, when a saint seeks after God, He is satisfied with the results. In verse 8 there, you'll notice they are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. David is referencing a point, a contact point. Because oftentimes people will say, well, I'm going to church. And you say that in the world, and they understand that to mean that you're going to a place where you're going to stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight. You're going to kneel. You're going to say a few prayers. You're going to say a few songs. And then when you leave that place, it stays there. Don't bring it to the workplace. Don't bring it to the neighborhood. You have your church over there. Don't bring it into the family meetings. But the church is you. You are the church. And when you leave, the church leaves. This is just a building. So even as David says this, you want to make sure you understand it. He's not talking about, oh, God's in the house over there. No, no, God is is within you. God was within David. And so it's very important. You see, when the problem seems too big, when the decision seems too hard, when the emotions are running off the charts, it's during these times that only God's word can satisfy the soul. And that's why you and I, we need to be in our Bible every single day on a regular basis where you need to be highlighting verses like I just mentioned to you. Just just going through there and really listening to the Holy Spirit and saying, wow, that's an incredible verse. And it might just be one word. And that word just jumps off the page to you at that particular morning or night or whenever you do your devotions. But you're having that private time. You see, Psalm 1611 says this, you will show me the path of life. Now, here's the question. As we mentioned last week, many times people will come and say, well, what is the will of God for me? And I explained that last week. Part of that explanation is prayer. You need to be in prayer. You need to be in the word. We all need to be in the word. We may need to seek counsel from others about a decision. There's nothing wrong with doing that. And as you're doing those things, you're going to be in the will of God. You are going to be in the will of God. Part of that, what was the second thing I mentioned? Prayer, the word, The word is key. 
The word is key. You will show me the path of life. You're going to see the path of life by being in the word of God. In your presence is fullness of joy. Now, that doesn't mean that we might be going through a joyful situation as this past year with my wife, you know, Claudia going through cancer. That wasn't necessarily a joyful time, but we could still have joy during that season knowing that God was with us, that God is within us, that God is going to bring us through this, that that God is going to be glorified however it turns out. God is going to be glorified. And so that gives a person joy within. Even though there might not be joy without, you can have joy within. And that is very important as we read the scriptures. In your presence, notice that, in your presence, spending time with God, you can still have fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know, when I think about these verses, uh, I, I think of those times where Claudia and I have had the privilege of visiting Niagara Falls. How many of you have ever visited Niagara Falls? Anybody been to Niagara Falls? The rest of you, I encourage you to go to Niagara Falls. It's unbelievable. You stand up at the rail, and it's constant. It's like, when do they turn this off? They never turn it off. They never adjust the volume. It's constant. Billions of gallons of water, 24-7, coming over the falls, over the falls. Go there any time of the day, any time of the night. It's not like they flip the switch at 9 o'clock at night. Oh, the visitors are gone. Turn off the water. Every 24-7. When the kids were little, we, we got on, um, I, th- I think it was called the Maid of the Mist. And so you get on this boat, and you're wearing, what do they call it? Ponchos, raincoat. And, uh, and so you got this thing on you, and they go, okay, we're going to go towards the fall. And they go towards the fall, and it's a big boat. And they've got the engines cranked. It's like, and you're, you're not getting closer to the falls. They got the engines cranked. The fall is coming over. The water's coming over, pounding so hard, so fast. They can't get any closer. And you're getting wet, and the kids are giggling and laughing, and there's water all over the place. See, that's like being with God. That's allowing God to be in your life. And, and sometimes you just, you know, you're in the middle of a trial, you're in the middle of a circumstance, and all of a sudden you'll just find yourself giggling. And somebody will look at you and go, what's the matter with you? And just, I'm just thinking how much God loves me. I just, I just had, you know, I just had this impression how much God loves me. And nobody can take that from me. Cause that's personal. It's you. Cause you're spending time with God and you're allowing the Holy Spirit to wash over you as you stand in awe. As you stand in awe of God's presence. The word precious in this verse It means valuable, prized, weighty, rare, splendid, costly, high-valued, glorious. Look at those words. I mean, look at the definition of that one word. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. How valuable. David is expressing Something that you and I, for me, let me not say you. For me, I have a hard time expressing. So as David writes this, I'm like, thank you, David, for writing this. Because this is what I want to say. So thank you for writing it down so I can at least read it and grasp in words. And so I want to ask you, 
How valuable is the word of God to you? Young people, how valuable is the word of God to you? I remember receiving Christ at 17. And I had a Bible with me at all times. In my backpack when I went to college, I had a Bible in my glove compartments. I had a Bible with me 24-7. It was so valuable to me. I was going to hell and now I'm going to heaven. It was so valuable and it still is so valuable. You know, how splendid is it to you? Is it something you're like, yeah, well, when I get to it, I get to it. That's not splendid then. Do you consider it rare? Do you consider it rare? I mean, people are writing books all the time. You can read a book every day if you want. But this is rare because this addresses what? Your, my, desperately wicked heart. And not only does it address it, but it gives an answer on how to fix it. These other books, they may give an answer, but they don't give the Holy Spirit that gives me the power to fix it. So through the word of God, I'm getting the Holy Spirit who's instructing me and giving me this valuable information, this rare information, this costly information, at no charge. It's free. But do I take the time to read it? Do I take the time to invest it? You older saints, are you taking the time? You have a lot of time. Are you taking the time to invest in your life personally so that you might turn around and invest in somebody else's life? Because there's no such thing as Christian retirement. Yes, there's a physical retirement, maybe from the ministry or such, but there's no such thing as spiritual retirement. People need Jesus. The next generation needs Jesus. Little ones need Jesus. That might happen in a, in a grocery store, in a restaurant. It might happen in the neighborhood. It might happen at a family gathering. People need to see Jesus. Because right now, guys, millennials, which are the 18 to 29-year-olds, I think I read an article the other day, 56% of the millennials that were surveyed, ah, there's no point going to church, and eh, if, there's, if there's a God, it's no big deal. 56% of 18 to 29-year-olds that were surveyed, yeah, you know, if there's a God, it's no big deal. The Bible, nah, it's not real. Do you deal with any 18 to 29-year-olds in your life? At the checkout counter? At a store? In your neighborhood? These are people that need to see Jesus and needing to know about Jesus. So for you and I, we have the opportunity to present the gospel to them. Because in verse 9 it says, For with you is the fountain of life. Your light, in your light, we see light. John 8, 12 says this, Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now think about that simple verse. Because we can look at it and go, oh yeah, I know that. Okay, check out. What's the will of God for my life? That verse helps tell us what the will of God is for my life. If I'm walking in the light... And Jesus is the light, then I'm in the will of God. So even a simple little verse like this that we often read and go, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus is the light of the world. I know that verse, yeah. What's the will of God for my life? Well, if you know the verse, then you're going to know what the will of God is for your life. Because you're walking in the light. What does he say? He who follows me. He who follows my ways. Well, what are God's ways? Are you reading your Bible? Well, no, that's your job. That's what we pay you for, Pastor. 
No, you don't pay me to read the Bible for you. You have to read the Bible. He who follows me, well, how do I follow Jesus? By walking in the light, by walking in the word of God. You're not going to walk in darkness. Living together, having sex outside of marriage, abusing prescription drugs, swearing, pornography, stealing, cheating the government. Tax season's coming up. Yes, how can I cheat the government? Yes. Uh, let me see, you're not walking in the light. I think Jesus said, give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar's. Just give it. But give the things to God that belong to God, which is what for us as believers, our whole being, our whole lives, including our taxes. God, you're going to take care of me. They're your taxes. Isn't darkness just the absence of light? You see, we all walked in darkness at one time. How many of you walked in darkness at one time? Did any of you walk in darkness at one time? You better be raising your hand, every single one of you, because you all did, you stinking sinners. You might have only been three or four, but you were walking in darkness. Our grandson, he walks in darkness sometimes. And I have to call him on the carpet. I said, what did you just say to me? And all of a sudden he's like, uh, you're three. You're three. Remember that. You're three. You want to make it to your fourth birthday. Don't talk that way. You don't want, don't talk that way. It's very important. Look at first John chapter one. It's when we came to the light of the gospel that we became saints. And first John chapter one says this. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. Notice the hymn there is capitalized, so it would be Jesus, specifically John the disciple. That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, God is light, and Jesus is light. We also know that the Holy Spirit is light as well, because the Holy Spirit is God. If we say that we fellowship with him and walk in darkness, which... Why, how could we be walking in darkness? It's just the absence of light. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us. Notice this. Cleanses us. Cleanses me. Make it personal. If you're walking in the darkness... You need to be cleansed. If I'm walking in the darkness, I mean, how many of us have sinned this past week? All of us. Isn't it wonderful to be able to admit that? Go to God and say, I'm sorry. Ask for forgiveness and know that you're cleansed. It's a wonderful, freeing feeling. It's fantastic. But we have to understand that. That his son cleanses us from all sin. John eight twelve says this. Then Jesus spoke to them again saying... I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You see, not only Jesus is the light, as I already mentioned, God is the light, but the Holy Spirit is the light, and he dwells within every believer. So Jesus taught his disciples very early on in the ministry. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, so you can see the progression here. Matthew chapter 5, 14 through 16. Jesus teaches his disciples at the very beginning of the ministry, not at the end, at the very beginning. You are the light of the world. They didn't have a clue what he was talking about. And you might not as well. 
But hopefully now that, you under, that you're seeing some scriptures put together, it makes a little more sense because David says in Psalm 36, 9, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Now you just do a cross-reference scripture. Anyone can do this. You are the light of the world. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but put it on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So what does Jesus say to you and me this morning? Let your light so shine before mankind. That's where men there is, mankind. Let your light shine in your workplace. That doesn't mean that you are out there evangelizing. That's not what you're paid to do. You can do that on your free time. But they're going to be looking at how you work. Are you on time? Do you follow the directions that the, that the employer gave to you? Do you take extended lunch periods? Do you take things home from the company that don't belong to you? And think, well, they're not going to miss it. What's an extra pencil? The world is watching. The extra pencil, the world is watching. And the enemy is just putting things into their mind. Oh, they call themselves a Christian, but they're taking home pencils. That's called stealing. It's only a nickel. It's only a nickel, pastor. Get off it. The world is watching. Get the bigger picture. The world is watching. When you do your personal stuff on your computer at work, the world is watching. You're not paid to do your personal stuff on the computer at work. Unless you ask your supervisor and you do it after hours or you do it on your lunch break, fine. If they approve it, they say, fine, you can do that, fine. But other than that, it's not fine. And the world is watching us. So Jesus says what? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify you. Is that what your Bible says? Is that why we're supposed to not do these things so that people will pat us on the back and say, oh, you're such a good employee. You're such a goody tutus. You're such a brown noser. Is that what it's all about? No, no, it's glorify your Father in heaven. Why would they glorify your heaven? Do they even know that you have a Father in heaven? Or are you a secret Christian? Nobody on the work site knows you're a Christian and you're so happy about that. That's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. Because if nobody knows you're a Christian in the workplace, who are they going to go to? Like this past week when somebody comes in and shoots up the workplace. Who are they going to turn to? But at least if they know you're a Christian and you're, you're not abusing any of the system, who do you think they're going to turn to if that does happen in your workplace? They're going to come directly to you. They're going to have a lot of questions. And then there's going to be a lot of ministry that's going to be taking place. But if you're a seeker Christian, what's the point? God doesn't need any seeker Christians. So let your light so shine that what? That they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Back in Psalm 36, 10 through 12, Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come against me. Let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the workers of iniquity have fallen. They have been cast down and not, are not able to rise. 
You see, David's prayer for safety. Let not those who walk in pride and wickedness have advantage over me. Let me dwell rather in your loving kindness and in your righteousness. And I would say that every believer in this room right now has that same prayer. You have that same desire. And so as we go forth, let's make sure we continue in that desire, even in the midst of a perverse and wicked world. Let's look at Psalm 38. You'll think, what about Psalm 37? Well, if you weren't here last week, it's on CD, so you can get it. I couldn't do 37 and 36 and 37 last week together, so we're doing 37 and 38 this week together. So Psalm 38, a Psalm of David to bring to remembrance. Now this Psalm is similar to Psalm 6 and 32, Psalm 6 and Psalm 32. It's called a penitential Psalm, a Psalm of repentance, and as we can see that David's physical condition is brought out in these verses. Uh, Like the church at Corinth, when we have uh, communion on the first Sunday of the month, there's verses that we read. Um, Some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you have even died. That's called chastening of the Lord or disciplining of the Lord. It does actually take place. But what we need to be careful of, though, is that not all sickness comes from disobedience or consequences of sin. You see, unfortunately, sickness is a part of the curse which originated after the fall in the garden through Adam and Eve. So here's a simple question. How do we know if our sickness is natural or is a result of sin? By being honest with ourselves through what? Self-evaluation. Self-evaluation. You see, if there is no obvious sin in my life, no rebellion to speak of, then the illness is not because of sin. It's it's pretty simple. The The devil is not behind every cold. But if there is a willful disobedience in my life, then maybe a sickness is being used by the Lord to chasten me, to discipline me. I shouldn't, I shouldn't put that out. I shouldn't negate that. I should honestly ask the Lord, is there something in my life that, that I'm, that I'm sick because of this? Because in verse 18, look at verse 18, Psalm 38, for I will declare my iniquity, I will be in anguish over my sin. David correlated his illness in Psalm 38 here directly to his sin. And maybe we need to do the same thing. Satan is not behind every cold, but that doesn't mean that God might not discipline us with something because of what we're doing. So we need to be aware of that. So, again, it's a repetitious psalm, so we're not going to break it down like we have the other psalms. You can get the CDs for that. Let's read the first eight verses. Because David expresses in great detail his situation, these first eight verses. His own sin has caused him to suffer afflictions. The chastening of God was bringing great physical pain. Does this mean that God takes delight in this? No. Just as earthly fathers, we don't take delight in chastening our children, but we do take delight in the fact that they learn and mature because of the chastening. That's what David is expressing in this psalm here. And for our sakes, David is expressing himself And it is a blessing because he shares with us the consequences of his sinful behavior, leaving us an example that we can learn from. You see, sin is foolishness in the eyes of God as well in the eyes of those who are seeking after his ways, which would be who? You and me. Sin is foolishness. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. For your arrows pierce me deeply and your hand presses me down. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. 
For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my parents. We love blaming other people, don't we? It's because of my boss. It's because of my employer. I am troubled because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long for my loins are full of inflammation. And there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. You see, disobedience will only cause us to be pulled even further away from God. And this is what happened in the life of David after Bathsheba for a year. For a year, he hid the fact of what he had done, but he couldn't hide from God. He could not hide from God. And God loved David enough to discipline him. And so David understood that and was crying out to God for deliverance. You see, we are free to sin, but there will be a consequence to that sin. And as David expresses here, we will not enjoy that consequence. Verse 9 through 14, David goes on to express a loss of relationships because of his sin. And I think this would be the hardest thing to go through in this life. You see, it takes time to develop trust. But it can only take a moment to dispel it. Please think about that. It takes a long time to develop trust, but it can only take a moment to dispel it. You see, David is not only feeling the physical consequences of his sin, he's also feeling the emotional consequences of his sin. Now, there are those who deliberately wait for this opportunity in verse 12. And we might not even hear their plots, but the plots are there in verse 13. And we can't answer them because we do not know the plots are taking place. And even if we did, our response would fall on the side of disbelief. Because actions speak louder than words. And it is by actions that we must resolve our relationships. So 9 through 14. Lord, all my desire is before you. And my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pants. My strength fails me. As for the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague and my relatives stand afar off. David is expressing almost leprosy here. Not that he had leprosy, but just that example of a person who had leprosy. If a person had leprosy, no one would come near them, even their, their, their closest loved ones. Contagious, very serious disease, and David expresses this. Those also who seek my life lay snares for me. Those who seek my hurt speak of destruction and plan deception all the day long. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear. And I am like a mute who does not open his mouth. Thus, I am like a man who does not hear and whose mouth is no response. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 7, because this is a very important principle for you and me as a believer. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. You see, it's very important to say I'm sorry to someone. But it's even more important to show that we're sorry through the fruit of repentance. Through the fruit of repentance. And repentance means to turn. Second Corinthians 7, 9 says this. 
Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner. Yeah, this is very interesting. Um, we had our young adult meeting this past Friday night, and the topic was, how, what do you say to your gay friend? That was the topic of discussion. And so we love every person. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with same-sex relationships, we love you. If you're involved with same-sex relationships, we love you and God loves you, and you can come out of that. You can be delivered of that. That is sin, just like adultery is sin. Just like fornication is sin. But sometimes in Christianity, we'll lift up one sin above another sin. It's all sin, and God wants to restore relationships. And so Paul, Paul says here that your sorry led to repentance. And one of the people, young people that were there said, well, I work with a person, an individual that goes to a church, and, they ju- and, and they're fine. The church is fine with their sin. They're fine with them being a homosexual. So there's no sorrow, so there's no repentance. You see, the word of God, if we're, if, if our hearts are tender, if our hearts are truly af- seeking after God, if I go to church and I'm truly seeking after God, and something happens and sorrow comes upon my heart for what I'm doing or someone else is doing, then that should lead to repentance. That should lead to me turning to God, which is a very good thing. But if my heart is hard and cold and calloused, and I'm just going to church because it's the social thing to do, it's the fun thing to do, it's the polite thing to do, it's the justifiable thing to do, hey, I can be a fornicator, but I go to church, so I'm okay. Really? Is that what the Bible says? And fornication, in case you don't know, in the Bible, is any sex outside of marriage. Any sex outside of marriage. It's not okay. But your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Notice that. Oh, I'm sorry. But then you turn around and do the exact same thing. Oh, I'm sorry. And you keep doing that? You're really not sorry. Not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. So even as Christians, we need to know this, there is a godly sorrow that should take place. And if a person is truly doing that and repenting, then we as believers need to truly forgive and forget and move on with that individual. Now, if there needs to be a healthy distance, then there needs to be a healthy distance. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves. Notice this here. They just didn't say, well, I'm sorry. They produced fruit of repentance, these Corinthians. Notice what it says, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So it wasn't just a matter of, oh, I'm sorry. Their works showed evidence of their sorrow. So even as believers, if we say to someone, well, I'm sorry, but then I slap them in the face the next day, I'm really not sorry. And I'm the one that has to repent. I'm the one that needs to be right and get right with God. In verses 15 through 22, for in you, O Lord, I hope, you will hear, O Lord, my God, You see, everyone else abandoned David, but David looked to the Lord. 
For I said, hear me, lest they rejoice over me. Lest when my foot slips, they exalt themselves against me. For I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. For I will declare my iniquity. I will be in anguish over my sin. David didn't play the blame game. Well, it's because Uriah wasn't around. Well, it's because Bathsheba was up on the rooftop bathing. Well, well, well. No, no, no. Me. Me. It was my fault. But my enemies are vigorous and they are strong. And those who hate me wrongfully have multiplied. Those who... Those also who render evil for good, they are my adversaries because I follow what is good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, do not be far from me. Make haste to help me. Notice this as David wraps up this song. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. As the music team comes up, in these verses here, David pleads for God's deliverance. And God will deliver him. You see, David had acknowledged his sin and now he was trusting that God would deliver him of that sin. His enemies, though, were rejoicing over his wrong choices, but David went back to his roots and he cried out to God. When you and I make mistakes, there might be others who rejoice over our mistakes. Just go back to God. You see, if you find yourself away from God today, if you feel that there is a distance between the two of you, just Repent. That's the exhortation this morning. Just repent. Don't get mad. Don't get bitter. Just repent. It's quite simple. It's humbling. Yes, it's humbling. But it is simple. And it is such a blessing because even though we are complex beings, we live out our relationships best through simplicity. I'm sorry. And then showing fruit of repentance. That's simplicity. I'm sorry. Fruit of repentance. As we do that, God is going to continually fill us with His Holy Spirit because God's desire is for His relationship with His kids to be constant. God's love is consistent. God's forgiveness is always available. It's up to us. Are we willing to surrender? Be restored. Because David was. Father, we thank you and praise you for this morning. Father, we thank you for this example. Even as we've studied in already in Psalm 6 and Psalm 32. But Lord, David once again writes down his heart. He gives us a very descriptive picture of his life while he was hiding from his sin. Not a pretty picture at all. So Father, even this morning, help us not to hide from our sin, but to bring our sin into the light. That we might walk in the light. That we might have true fellowship with you and not be foolish. Help us to learn through the examples in the word. And even from those other examples in our lives, other Christians and and people in the world who make poor choices. Help us to learn so we don't go down that road. 
that you would be glorified, Lord, in and through our lives. And that men and women this week would see the light of Christ in our lives. They would see those good works that we're doing for you, that we're just diligent in our workplace. And they would glorify you because of it. Help us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, Father. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. When we all stand, guys, God bless you. If you need prayer, please come up. If you need to repent, please come up. We're not going to beat you up. But you need people to agree with you. So if you need to repent, just come on up. Love you guys. Have a blessed week. Your love, oh Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness stretches to the sky. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountain, yeah. Your justice flows like the ocean's tide. And I will live my voice. To worship you, my King. Find my strength in the shadow of your wings. Your love. Your love, O oh Lord. Reaches to the heavens Your faithfulness Stretches to the sky And your righteousness Is like the mighty mountain yeah, and your justice flows like the ocean's tide. And I will lift my voice to worship you, my King. And I will find my strength in the shadow of your wings. I will lift, and I will lift my voice to worship you, my King. And I will find my strength. In the shadow of your wings Your love, O oh Lord Reaches to the heavens Your faithfulness 
stretches to the sky.